Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Duran. Jamie is a multi-award winning independent documentary filmmaker, former BBC producer and ardent Celtic supporter. In 2008, he established Clover Films, an independent production company which has produced films for major channels worldwide, including Al Jazeera, Channel 4, BBC and ABC Australia. Hello and welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi there, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's brilliant to have you on. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be here. And uh, I love the mention of Celtic, of course. Well, of course, yeah. And that's not to mention another football club that you... Was it the Datchet Football Club you started off, didn't you? Yeah, that was a long time ago. But uh, <laughs> I played as striker for them until the age of 42. And thankfully, I uh, damaged my ligaments. And, uh, and that was that. I had an excuse to give up. Uh, right. Okay. So now you you just watch them. Now I'm just uh, a fan. Yeah, I go along. I'm the president of the club for life, and uh, I go along and watch them. And they're doing very well. We've now got four teams, uh, yeah. whereas obviously we started with just the one, yeah. and uh, extremely bad quality. And now they're they're far far stronger. And that that's Datchet near Windsor, isn't it? In, in, yeah, just down the road from Windsor. Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. Anyway, um, like I say, great to have you on. Um, so we've had lockdown over the last year. How's it been for you as a filmmaker? Um, pretty tough. I mean, I was very lucky because I had uh, a series uh, just agreed prior to the lockdown, a six-part series. So I managed to uh, get most of the filming done uh, prior to being told I couldn't move and then obviously had to do things by remote control. It's a very bizarre experience when, you know, literally I've got a shoot going on in Indonesia, for example, in uh, Java. Yeah. And uh, we had um, the cameraman uh, literally had his phone attached to the camera so that I could watch everything he was doing from thousands of miles away. So, uh, yeah, that, that was different. But, uh, yeah, it, it kept – I was able to keep working throughout – uh, but uh, it's a hor- it's a horrible experience. Yeah, it's it's amazing how people have adapted during this period, and obviously you've done that with your filmmaking. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was funny that uh, when when it came at first, if you remember, last April, it was around about twenty five degrees, twenty six degrees here. It was warm, and there was a certain novelty about the lockdown. And obviously, I've got a, I, I've actually in the period of the lockdown, I've written my first movie script as well, and so that that was quite fun. The second lockdown was very different, uh, very depressing and uh, desperate to travel. I I realized at the end of January that I was supposed to be in six different countries that month and had visited none. So it was a bit strange. I I agree with you. I I think that second big lockdown in the winter was the hard one. I think when we had it a year ago, it was like a novelty, as you say. The weather was good. And I remember saying to people, you know, thank goodness it's not in the winter. Look what we got. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's been anyway, horrible. So you've, you've done a lot of travelling. We're going to talk about Afghanistan because that's somewhere where you've uh, recently come back from. But just before we talk about Afghanistan, um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and how you've got to where you are as a documentary filmmaker, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, when I was uh, 21, I applied for a job at a newspaper and uh, managed to get that. I think I was one of 364 or something like that, I seem to remember and managed to get that job, spent a couple of years there, 
And then uh, in a kind of crazy situation, an old friend of mine mentioned there was a job going at the BBC in a program you may or may not remember called Nationwide. Yes. And uh, effectively, it was taking over Scotland, taking over an entire country for um, the BBC's biggest current affairs show. So I thought I had no chance. And uh, one way or another, I got it and uh, found myself suddenly a filmmaker. But I always remember my first cameraman came to me and said, uh, Jamie, do you remember, uh, do you know why you've been so successful? It sounds awful, me saying that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Ricky Walker was his name. Do you know why he was so successful? And uh, I said, no. And uh, he said, do you not remember your first words to me? And I said, no, I don't, Ricky. He said, you, you came to me and said, look, I don't have a clue what to do here. Can you teach me? Uh-huh. And so he did, and it was fantastic. I was taught by a very good cameraman yeah. uh, how to actually make things happen, and from then on, it was uh, it was pretty pretty well straightforward. Yeah, Nationwide was a big program, wasn't it, in the seventies? Very big, uh, very big. And I was lucky; I was on the investigative side. I was also on the founding team of Watchdog, and uh, we managed to put together quite a few good investigations, including one, funnily enough, since you mentioned the football. Uh, I was the one who got inside the scouting system of um, Glasgow Rangers. Uh, I say that with a slight kind of stickiness in the throat. But uh, I got inside their scouting system to prove that they had purposefully refused to sign a Catholic player for over 60 years. And as a result of that film, which I think had 12.5 million viewers that night, as a result of that film... Uh, the very next day after broadcast, Rangers f- signed their first Catholic in six decades. Is that right? Uh, mainly because of the threat from UEFA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing, isn't it? So you you were with the BBC for a while, um, and then and then what what went on? What did you do after that? Well, I did the BBC. I did uh, those various programs. I was a reporter at, uh, for a period as well. Although I don't like putting my face on screen, then I was producer of the Money Program and Newsnight. And then I just decided it was like I'd had enough. And also the BBC seemed to be edging towards, even more towards bureaucracy. And I thought it's time to get out. So I went to the head of current affairs and said to them that I wanted to leave. And uh, could they give me three months money and I'll just get out the door. And I was taken out for a lovely meal by deputy head Andrew Tausig. Uh, who basically said, you've risked risked your life enough for the BBC, Jamie. We want you to take nine months. And when I tell people in the BBC that story these days, they just say it would never happen today. It was a different animal then. It was more family than than today where, you know, it is so bureaucratic that uh, unfortunately I, I hear so many stories from inside. And it's a great shame. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what year did you leave the BBC? Oh, God, way back, uh, the late 80s. Yeah. And then I managed, as an independent, I managed to get uh, the very first independent uh, current affairs show on ITV network called, uh, what was it called? Um, Out of Order, Out of Order. Yeah. And uh, we had a fantastic time there. We were averaging about 8 million viewers every week and uh, and just really annoying the establishment, which is something I enjoy. After that, then I started getting into films. Uh, yeah. I did a lot of stuff in, uh, I mean, full-length uh, documentaries. I did a lot of stuff in Russia. I lived in Moscow for around two years in total. 
And uh, I did uh, a thing called The Red Bomb, which was the kind of history of the KGB and Atomic Secrets, uh, which was a um, fantastic series to make. And I got to meet some of the most incredible people I ever met in my life, uh, including the man who saved the world, Alexander Fiklisov. He was the one who, uh, if people look him up, you can find the detail, but uh, he was the one who... Uh, basically um, acted as liaison between Kennedy and Khrushchev oh, during yes. the 62 Cuban crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember that he got an offer from uh, Kennedy, which was basically to um, not invade Cuba and to take the missiles, the American missiles out of Turkey, if the Russians would pull back uh, from the island. And uh, he went to his ambassador in Washington and said, can you send this? And the ambassador said, no way, I'm not touching anything. Just just keep away from me. So Alexander ended up going on his own into the secure room down in the basement or whatever of the embassy where, you know, it was safe from uh, eavesdroppers yeah. and managed to get a message through to Moscow Center saying, we have this deal. Stop. Stop the boats. We have this deal. Yeah. And it was because of that, or largely because of that, that uh, the crisis was averted. We were very close to... Armageddon, and he was an extraordinary man. I, I was so proud to call him a friend for many, many years thereafter. Yeah. That was an incredible story, Jamie. Yeah, I remember reading about it some time ago. Incredible man, beautiful man. I went to Moscow last year. I was making a big series on the KGB, actually the year before, uh, making a series on the KGB and FSB as it is today. And uh, I went to Alexander's grave to pay my respects. Oh, that's that's nice. So um, I was going to say, before we talk about Afghanistan, I mean, what, what draws you to what I would perceive as being sort of fairly dangerous situations? Um, I, think, I think I was born in Glasgow. Ah, is, <laughs> it, what it, side it, of Glasgow was that, Jamie? Uh, oh, no, no, it wasn't a heavy part. It, it, no. was, um, it was certain I was brought up in a council home, but it wasn't in a difficult part. It was in the yeah. south side in Newlands. Yeah. And uh, it, it was, it's just a fantastic city that prepares you for absolutely everything in life. I, I can't speak highly enough of it. It gives you this beautiful friendship that Glaswegians have and the welcome that uh, everyone talks about when they go to the city, but it also gives you an understanding of the rough side of life. Yeah. And uh, also, like it or not, um, there is a kind of adventurous nature about Glasgow that makes us all feel as if we can go out and um, take on the world. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a different vibe in Glasgow to Edinburgh. Both lovely cities, but they do feel quite different. Yeah, I, th I think um, Edin Edinburgh's pretty and Glasgow is everything else, including all the great things. Okay. So um, if we can talk about Afghanistan, because that's one of, your, one of your latest projects. I mean, you, you, I, I believe you've been going to Afghanistan for, what, 20 years now, is it? Yeah, I was uh, one of the first journalists into Afghanistan at the very beginning of the war. Uh, yeah. Funnily enough, I was... Uh, lined up to interview Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was the head of the Northern Alliance at the time. They were hanging on against the Taliban in the far corner of Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, basically everything was prepared. Then he was killed. And then two days later, 9-11 happened. And I was obviously fully prepared uh, for the journey anyway. So I managed to get in. And unlike other journalists, mo most journalists were kind of ferried to a place called Hujibodin and uh, held under some kind of martial law, whereas I had um, effectively paid enough bribes to the security guys yeah. that uh, I managed to live on the front line from the very beginning. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, we've already spoken about your your sort of appetite for visiting dangerous places and dangerous people. What what actually made you want to film in Afghanistan? I, I, oh, I think um, objection, strong objection to uh, the Taliban, especially their treatment of women. Yeah. Uh, that uh, I, I just wanted to, the Ahmad Shah Massoud obviously was the major drag at the time and he, he was something of a, of a poet and an extraordinary character and I wanted to meet him and talk to him because he was one of the, the last person effectively holding out against uh, the Taliban and uh, when he died I just felt a duty to go and tell the story yeah and so before we talk a, a bit about your exploits in Afghanistan and, and your filming um are you able to give? I know it's it's you know it's a very long history, but would you be able to give listeners a very brief summary of the history of Afghanistan, please? Well, uh, not an easy one, except perhaps it is. It's a country that is uh, str- strategically key to the entire region. I mean, it borders half a dozen countries, and you can go from China to the former Soviet Union to Iran to Pakistan, etc. And it's it's no coincidence that uh, the Silk Road went through Afghanistan. Uh, it is one of those areas that, um, you know, all the other countries around, and this is part of the film I'm making just now, all the other countries around are anxious to influence or to control. And uh, the problem with that is that Afghans have seen themselves themselves invaded by various countries for, yeah. for you know, for centuries. Yeah. And indeed, in the, the late uh, 19th century, of course, it was the British, and uh, they didn't realize then and still don't realize now. The West doesn't realize that Afghanistan will always welcome liberators. Uh, they will only unite against occupiers. And when we went in in 20, uh, 2001, we had uh, kind of the, the biggest welcome imaginable uh, from a people who were looking to be freed from the the, the, the hell of living under the Taliban. Yeah. But then we decided to stay. And instead of pulling out, as I was screaming at people to do uh, before the end of 2002, because by then the Taliban had been defeated, the Afghan people were united, we decided to kind of leave soldiers there and go and concentrate on another war in Iraq. Uh, what that ha- what that meant, it allowed corruption to come in because we were just throwing money at Afghanistan. It allowed corruption to come in. It allowed factions to grow. And, of course, it allowed the Taliban to start coming back into the country. And that, that that's where, you know, we, we just, we blew it. And uh, I, I'm frankly disgusted that we have stayed as long as we have. And now, ironically, we are leaving effectively under a declaration of um, of surrender, unconditional surrender, uh, and leaving the country to face what is without question going to be a very bloody civil war. Yeah, and, and this this programme that you're making at the moment, it, it's, a, it's an update on what's been happening and, and how you see the future, is it? Uh, a bit of that, but uh, a bit more, because I managed to get to um, someone who is said to be one of the most dangerous men in Afghanistan, yeah. uh, basically the de facto military leader of the Taliban. Uh, I managed to, I had to climb a mountain to go and see him uh, and to meet up with him and be um, guarded by the Taliban throughout. 
uh, to meet a, a fellow called Mullah Niazi, who was a co-founder of the Taliban with Mullah Omar, yeah. uh, but basically re- leads the the what, what, I, what I describe as the provisional wing. If you think of Northern Ireland, you had the official IRA and the provisional IRA, and the officials were kind of looking to negotiate. The uh, provisionals uh, saw war, saw conflict as the way forward at that time. Yeah. And uh, Niazi sees uh, himself in the position as this military leader uh, to be the victorious leader. He doesn't see why they are negotiating in Qatar or Turkey or Moscow. And he basically wants to see the Taliban just control the country once more. Under the Taliban, Niazi was governor of Kabul and the entire north of the country. He was a very, very powerful man. So- and he, he has effectively broken away from the mainline Taliban uh, to set up this military wing, uh, mainly because he didn't like the interference of Pakistan and of Iran uh, and indeed of Qatar. And uh, he sees the negotiations with these countries uh, yeah. or, or with the government as a waste of time. So so talk us through, I mean, you, you, you've gone to one of the most dangerous countries in the world and met one of the most dangerous military leaders in the world. Uh, talk us through how you how you actually get an interview. Uh, that, that, that comes down to fixers. Um, no international journalist, no roaming journalist can live without local fixers. Fixers are uh, the most important thing uh, in any country or people you go to in any country that you visit. And uh, the fixers basically set it up. I'm kind of fortunate in that I'm held in some esteem by the Taliban because of uh, a film I made very early in the war about the massacre of two to two and a half thousand Taliban fighters uh, by the Northern Alliance, uh, with the Americans standing by letting it happen, by the way. And uh, every senior military commander in the Taliban had either a brother or a cousin or a father or a son in the containers into which they were squashed uh, and and suffocated to death. And so I basically, I, I discovered the bodies uh, that had um, been buried uh, to try and get them out of sight. I made this story public and since then the Talibs have been uh, very, um, I wouldn't say friendly towards me, but at least they hold me in a, a degree of esteem. Yeah, your reputation goes before you. So, so um, for for people who would like to understand what it's actually like when you meet these people, uh, how does it feel? Um, I, I, it's that's a really good question because people are always saying you must have been frightened or you must have been this or you must have been. I, I was totally relaxed. Were you uh, totally? I mean, I mean, again, I've been through the wars of um, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, everything else, everywhere else you can imagine. And uh, I've got used to kind of dodging bombs and bullets. I've had snipers, bullets uh, whizzing past the back of my head too much and uh, et cetera. And so I felt very, very calm. Again, the fixer was a very, very um, clever chap. And uh, he arranged everything. And, uh, you know, in fact, I was joking with them. It was really funny that on the car, in the car on the way, I was picked up at the hotel in in, in Herat. And they noticed the top, just peeping out of the top of my um, tunic, uh, was, of course, my Celtic top. And the guys started talking to it through uh, my reporter, Najibullah. They started talking to him about, you know, is that a Celtic top? And Naj says, uh, they want to know, is that a Celtic top? And I was, this the Taliban. And I'm saying, yeah. 
And the next thing was bizarre. Uh, he said, um, they want to know who the new manager will be. <laughs> and, I, and I said, what, what's going on? And he then explained, he talked to them, and he then explained that apparently in Herat, one of the few things that unite all the factions is uh, there is a, quite a large Celtic support exactly. in this town in the middle of nowhere on the border with Iran or between Iran and Afghanistan. There's a big support there, and it boils down, of course, to um, Celtic fans being very supportive of um, the Palestinian cause, right. uh, and that's a cause very dear to, to all Muslims uh, around the world. And uh, the result was, of course, that I was even more welcome than I expected. Oh, that's amazing. So you, you gain the trust of these people uh, through your reputation. You, you meet the fixers who, I guess, um, get paid. Indeed. They, get, they act as liaisons bet- between yourselves and yourself and the, the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you, actually, when you actually meet them, you, you said you were fairly relaxed. Um, you felt okay. How, how are they as people? It's it's something, again, a very good question because uh, people don't quite understand that most of the Taliban are literally just farmers who've picked up weapons. Uh, they are not these devils. Uh, of course, you do have um, a section, if you like. I, I call them the stereis. Yeah. But, uh, you know, even when I was feeling very, very relaxed and everyone was incredibly friendly, there were always one or two in the background who were staring at me and you could almost read their thoughts. That is, I want to kill you, and I don't know why I'm not able to kill you. Mm. It's really funny that they stare as if I am uh, a devil arrived in their company, uh, yeah. and they can't understand why you can't just uh, blow me away. It's fascinating. But most of them are as, as friendly as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, you have to be, aw- be aware constantly that they, they are also um, killers. Yeah. So I, I suppose something that listeners would be very interested in, I mean, the, the, the Taliban were defeated in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. as you said earlier on. Now they're, they're big again. What, what makes a farmer pick up a weapon and join, and join the Taliban? Funnily enough, it's alienation from Kabul and alienation from the government. It's a belief, uh, and sadly it is true, that government and government structures are utterly corrupt they can't trust the court system. They can't trust politicians. Uh, everyone is for sale. And so the poor have nothing to turn to. And so that's why many of them turn to the Taliban. Mm. So what, what sort of percentage of the people, the population of Afghanistan, would you say are, are either in the Taliban or are sympathetic to the causes? I, I wouldn't say too many are sympathetic to the causes, uh, simply because we have to understand that they see it as a slightly better alternative than the corruption of government. Yes. But uh, in terms of numbers, you've probably got something, anything between ninety to 120,000 fighters. Yeah. Uh, but you have to understand, uh, especially as I discovered when I was over there a couple of weeks ago, that um, the Taliban itself is very badly split at the moment. Uh, it's something that the West doesn't seem to be aware of and something, funnily enough, that will cause major, major problems, whatever the outcome of the civil war in the future. You obviously met all, what I'd say ordinary, I mean, non-military Afghan people. What what are their thoughts on it? 
Well, first of all, I want to say, I mean, you have to understand this is one of my favourite, if not my favourite country in the world. They are the friendliest, loveliest people you could possibly hope for. I mean, you can't walk past a farm, uh, but the farmer wants to bring you in and give you the last piece of bread on his table. They're they're fantastic people who have been destroyed by 40 years of war. Uh, the, the, the amount of PTSD, no one talks about it. I made a film on it. The amount of PTSD in the Afghan population probably is over 80%, 80%, which is, uh, extraordinary. They've they've lived under hell forever. And, uh, and that, that, that's what drives me because I, I feel so angry for them. But in terms of the support for the Taliban, as I say, they see it as an alternative, but not, uh, I would say, something they would want to live under forever. You know, the people talk of Sharia law, and there are levels of Sharia law uh, and different interpretations of Sharia law, and very few want to go back to the days of cutting off hands and uh, shooting women in football fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that certainly people's perception, my perception is is that, you know, Afghanistan, with all the trouble they've had, would detest somebody from the West. And yet uh, you say that you're there, they can see you from the West and, and they would invite they would invite you in and give you the last piece of their bread. Um, what What is the perception that they have of the West? Um, I think as total failures, if you really want to know the truth. I mean, individuals like myself, can uh, we can have fantastic talks. But uh, when you talk to ordinary Afghans, uh, especially in the cities these days, they feel completely abandoned by the West, that the West has just walked out or is walking out the door and uh, has forgotten why they went in the first place. And they're leaving the ordinary Afghans uh, to pay the price uh, and pay the price they will, unfortunately. Yeah. But they're okay with individuals such as yourself when you get to Absolutely. I mean, again, I, I know them very well. And so I'm able to chat to them uh, on, on all sides. I'm able to chat to them and, and to understand and to empathize with uh, what they've gone through and what they are going through and what they will go through. I mean, honestly, it, it's so important to realize uh, we, we are not going to walk away scot-free on this one. We are going to live with this in our conscience for a long time. How do you see peace coming to Afghanistan? I don't. That's a sobering thought. Yeah, it's 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 awful. It's it's been awful to watch. As I say, twenty years I've been going there, uh, three, four, five times a year, and uh, it's just it's it's tragic to see what has happened and where the country is now going. Uh, I just I I can't accept the mess that the West has made of it. So, what needs to be done, in your opinion, to um, correct things? Uh, Right now, uh, it's very difficult. There is one possibility of avoiding conflict, uh, and I don't think that's a very strong possibility, I have to say, and that is a United Nations force made up of uh, Muslim countries. Yeah. Uh, That that is the only possible force that the sides would accept. But having said that, the Taliban are so close to victory that um, I, I just... I find it difficult to see them accepting that. When I was speaking to Niazi, even he was um, kind of edging slightly towards that as the only possible alternative. And I, indeed, I heard that from the other side as well. Yeah. And But it's something that's not really being talked about in official circles. And that's unfortunate. It's the, 
it's probably the only long shot we have of avoiding civil war, but I, but I don't think the parties will agree to it. No. Um, and while you were there, did conversations go towards the fact that, you know, you've, you've got the Taliban and you've got, the, you've got ISIS there as well? And uh, oh, sure. you know, how, how do the two coexist? <laughs> well, ISIS tried to kidnap me a few years ago, so um, I, I'm not. Uh, frankly, I don't mind saying this. Uh, I believe you can negotiate with the Taliban yeah. uh, if you actually take a, a kind of gentle approach to them. You can actually negotiate with them, but you cannot uh, negotiate with ISIS. It is a waste of time. ISIS are a very, very dangerous, very deadly group. They are uh, a bunch of indoctrinated madmen. There's no better way of describing them. Uh, funnily enough, the reason that I wasn't um, kidnapped, I was on my way to meet them, yeah. and uh, I got a warning from an ISIS chief that I'd come across before, uh, but he wasn't doing it out of kindness. He was only doing it because his cut wasn't as big as the rest. So he thought he'd <laughs> warn me not to go. Wow. And what's the Taliban's view of ISIS? Interesting. Depends on which group you're talking about. Remember, right. we're talking about uh, a Taliban that is not united. Yeah. And indeed, even on the ground, has very different groups. There have been quite a few groups which have been defecting to ISIS as they see you know, ISIS as being the, the, the kind of heavy hand that will accept no compromise. Yeah. But uh, Niazi's rise has probably stemmed the flow to ISIS. In terms of them living together, so to speak, uh, they don't. They fight a lot. There are a few areas where there's a kind of tacit agreement not to attack each other. Yeah. But given the opportunity, uh, the Taliban would destroy ISIS uh, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So as, as we as we've had a great well we've had a, a very interesting conversation about the um, dynamics of the war going on out there and, and and all that in terms of Afghanistan as a country um, are there any anything that is there anything there that perhaps we don't know know much about over, over in the West that you've noticed any any surprises that got to you well I, I think one of the key things is the move by the Chinese. Um, to understand that, uh, Afghanistan is full of precious minerals. And uh, the Chinese have been very, very carefully moving their financial power into Afghanistan because to make all these things like mobile phones, etc., you you need these precious metals. And uh, Afghanistan is frankly full of them. It hasn't been exploited in the past because of uh, the wars. Uh, and the Chinese are recognizing this, are willing to play on any side, as they do always. They're willing to play on whatever side suits them in order to extract these minerals. And you're going to see a major financial influx from China into Afghanistan once the West is gone. So you've been to a lot of countries. You've obviously got a, um, a particular pride in going to Afghanistan. What are you most proud of? Ooh, in Afghanistan? Well, one, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, Jamie, is is your, um, I, I mentioned multi-award winning, but can you tell, I mean, you've got some fantastic awards, haven't you, in your filmmaking? Yeah, I, I've been very, very lucky. I got a bunch of Emmys and uh, the DuPont, which is the equivalent equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. I've got two or three of them, I can't remember, uh, and, and various other ones. And it's just, I think it's been being in the right place at the right time. If I have any skills, it's... Uh, on copy tasting, I understand what a good story is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, and that you know I, I get out there and frankly over the years we've managed to build up such a network that we have access that no other company in the world can possibly boast. So yeah. we've been lucky enough to be able to get in places where no one else could go, uh, and that's been extremely helpful. And uh, I suppose uh, they keep giving us awards because of um, you know because we 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 do things differently. So apart apart from the awards, which you're obviously proud of, I, I guess uh, you're probably most proud of actually bringing some of these things to the uh, the viewers' attention. Yeah, I mean, th- this company, our company, Clover, has yeah. a way of um, kind of focusing on children in conflict zones in quite a big way. Yeah. And uh, probably my proudest film out of Afghanistan was a film called The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan, oh, yeah. where, where we exposed the exploitation of young boys by warlords. Uh, And the result of the film, of course, was that uh, a centuries-old tradition of abusing these young boys uh, was banned under law across the country, which um, we're we're very, very proud of. We've managed to change quite a few laws around the world and uh, and indeed even in the UK. But uh, that one stands out because it was horrific what was going on. And now it's called Bacha Bazi, which means boy play. Uh, and uh, thankfully that is now banned. And uh, I, I, I sometimes wonder how many kids we saved from uh, the, the hell of that experience. Oh, that's, a, that's an amazing achievement, Jamie. And you mentioned that you've, there's also some laws that have been changed in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We changed quite a few things. Uh, workers' rights. Uh, also, again, in Pakistan, we took probably... Well, some people estimate up to two or three hundred thousand kids off the streets uh, as a result of one of our films. We're, we're just, you know, we've been honoured by the United Nations on two occasions for our work with um, children in war zones. So that that's the kind of above the Emmys and uh, all the rest of it. I think that's the best accolade. And um, if people want to, if any listeners want to actually see some of your films, where, where's the best place to go? Well, since everyone steals them, they can find them on the web if they look hard enough. Oh, is that right? Yeah, no, no matter what we try. There was one, one film I made on transgenders in Pakistan, and uh, we'd um, made massive efforts to stop it getting on the web. And then uh, probably about three or four days after we'd cleared up you know, access uh, to, to the transgenders film, uh, I just jumped on to check had anyone stolen it since then, and uh, straight away found one site alone that had 7 million views. Wow. Wow. Crazy. Oh, Crazy. It's amazing. So are there any, any channels that you would suggest that people go to that you'd be more happy to share with people? Uh, well, uh, to be honest, um, you know, they can find us on uh, Clover Films yeah. uh, on the web. Or, you know, we do a lot of films for Al Jazeera and they keep them on the web. Uh, right. We've done probably... 20 or 30 films for them over the years and they keep them on the web and you know included in those are probably uh, half a dozen or more films about Afghanistan I'll put those links on the, the uh, show notes Jamie if there's anybody listening who is interested one in being a filmmaker and two in becoming an investigative journalist what would you say to them um, well if they wanted to do what I do uh, then take your time uh, don't Pick up. Uh, unfortunately, I've seen far too many young people 
picking up a camera, thinking that they can become a camera person very, very quickly, and off they go to a war zone and get killed. Yeah. Um, for goodness sake, learn the trade as much as possible before going into war zones. There are too many children out there, and by children I'm, I'm kind of uh, referring to young men and women going out with no experience whatsoever uh, and either getting killed or even worse, uh, causing someone else to be killed by their yeah. mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So be very careful. Spend spend a few weeks in Glasgow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, you know, be lucky enough to be born there. <laughs> the other thing I was going to ask you is, is uh, what do you do in your spare time? But it sounds as though you don't have a lot of spare time, Jamie. Okay. Well, um, funnily enough, I'm, I'm writing uh, my autobiography, which I've been pushed on as a publisher has been squeezing me for about five years. So I, I'm writing that in my spare time. I'm writing script two, the second version uh, of the movie script, which I've written. Uh, and of course, I'm utterly and absolutely obsessed with Celtic and, and not, not Celtic football club, funnily enough, but the fans. The fans are, are the club. The fans are an extraordinary group of people who yeah. stand up uh, against fascism, against sectarianism, against racism, uh, and it's something that's very close to my heart. It sounds like it. So, so the movie, can you tell us a bit more about the movie? I can't really, because um, it, I have to keep it fairly secret. It's been commissioned for American television yeah. and will then go worldwide after that. And uh, basically, the, the, the best I can say, as I've mentioned before, is that we get extraordinary access to all sides uh, and we have some extraordinary revelations uh, which are going to come out of the film, including an incredible offer by the Taliban to the West. Wow. Wow. Well, that sounds, that sounds quite exciting. So I, w- I won't um, press you any more on that then, Jamie, um, but it'd be great to, to find out when it's going to be released. Uh, yeah, it'll be June. It'll be June. We're not sure of the exact date yet, yeah. but it will be June. And we are working away like crazy here downstairs in the edit suite, uh, trying to, to make sense of all the footage we have and trying to knit, knit it together in an understandable form. Sure. Any, where are you going next then? What country are you going to next? Uh, I can't say. I never say before I go because, um, you know, yeah. my, my phones are constantly monitored. I even had a, a friend in a certain place who checked where my emails go and I couldn't believe uh, the security um, services of uh, far too many countries are watching my emails and etc etc. So all I do is I stay quiet and I pop up wherever I arrive. That sounds like a wise tactic, Jamie. Well, Jamie, I'll, I'll put the, the links to your um, websites and things on, on the show notes. Um, it's been great talking to you. So thanks ever so much for coming on. And thank you. All the very best. Thank you. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I will be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. 